Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Hideaway Podcast, episode 73. Tihetar. That's Hindi. Well, we've had a seriously busy last week or so, 10 days. How many <laughs> yeah. days? I don't know. I've lost count. We started it off with the Beyond Babble Ensemble Dancer Auditions this past Monday. Oh my God, that was, yeah, a week ago today. <laughs> oh my God. We started with about 500 applications online. We invited 110 people to come in person and uh, whittled it down to about 10. Yes, we, I think we know what, we, yeah, I think we ended with about 12 actually. 12. Yes. It was a long day. I started at 9 a.m., went till about 4. Super hard dancing. For those who don't know, Beyond Babel's our dance show. It's coming to New York this winter. It was previously playing in San Diego last summer. And uh, we were looking for new new cast members. Yeah. We had a, it was a, I think a, a different audition process than people are used to because we call everyone at the same time and everyone dances in front of everyone. And while you're not dancing, you're cheering on the people who are dancing. And then we do a cut and then we learn a new piece because the show, if you've seen it or if you haven't seen it, it's a real combination of really hard hitting hip hop and then much more lyrical um, contemporary hip hop, which, you know, they do dances to Billie Eilish and Michael Bloom. So it's a little bit more subdued. So we need to really make sure people could do both. Um, and it, it is interesting that some people can't, but then we cut it down. They learned the, the softer piece. Then we did another cut and they all did the first and second pieces. And then we did interviews because we always interview our potential cast members. And for those of you who are curious about what our audition process is like, uh, we did record it. So it's going to be another one of our behind Babel uh, docu-series episodes. Not sure when we'll post it, maybe in November or December. Uh, we did post the previous auditions, but if you're just sort of curious to see what auditioning for Hideaway Circus, and in this case also Keone and Mari, is like, definitely check that out. Speaking of auditions, Circus Smirkus is auditioning for their Big Top Tour this winter. I believe applications close in the next couple of weeks. So if you're a 13 to 18 year old who wants to go on tour in a Big Top tent and show off your circus skills to all of the Northeast, do 70 shows over a 10 week period, uh, now is the time to apply. Strongly, strongly recommend it. I did it when I was a kid. Loved it. Uh, applications are online at circusmarcus.org. Hopefully we can actually make auditions this year. That would be great. We always try. It's going to be in the middle of our rehearsal and tech window, though. In this so case. probably not. <laughs> Dang it. Speaking of circuses, we saw Big Apple Circus also last week. Was it last week? I can't even remember. <laughs> oh, maybe it was this past. It was last week. Yeah, it was great. You know, it was, it was surprising in, in the direction in which they're going, because if you've been reading the news, you know, you constantly see Big Apple's changing management, Big Apple's changing acts, Big Apple's changing their tour route. So they're constantly in a state of flux, and we really didn't know what to expect from this year's show. Yeah, Big Apple had previously been touring the really Northeast area, and this year they decided to stop touring the Northeast and just focus on Lincoln Center in New York City. Exclusively. Exclusively. So that's an interesting model change of just playing for three months every year. Um, and they also were trying to do an arena tour, which got canceled pretty close to when it was supposed to start. For lack of ticket sales. For lack of ticket sales. So, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see where Big Apple goes. But I had a great time this year. Jack Marsh and his mom, Cecil McKinnon, 
they who's going to be a guest uh, in the future. They kind of were, are the new management director team, and I think they did a great job this year. Yeah, I mean, Jack, who was a previous guest, so go back and listen to his podcast episode, was raised in the circus and really knows all of the, the important elements you have to put together to have a great show. For those who haven't seen it this year, I would say Big Apple has continued to have the no theme theme going in that very traditional route of it's just about the acts. But what's great about this year, and I would say certainly in comparison to the last two, is the acts are outstanding. Yes. Like, they're really able to lean into the acts because the acts are of another level. They have a tight wire act. They have a wheel of death act. They have domesticated cats act. Oh my god, my favorite! I asked Jack if we could have the cats ladies on because I love cats and they were such cat cats. Like they were trying to do a trick and the cats were like, "Nope," and like would walk away. And they eventually would do the tricks, but they were so impressive. Yeah, I love a good cat act. They had an amazing flying act that was a combination of Russian bar. Russian Cradle and Russian Swing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the finale. I strongly recommend uh, yeah. seeing the show just to see that act if you're a rigging. circus fan. And the rigging is nuts because they move the distance between the cradles and the swings during the act for different tricks. It's really cool. Yeah, the rigging and, is more of a trick than, than yeah. almost anything. And the clown this year is Amy G. <laughs> She's a pigeon. Um, named Pidge. Named Pidge, but it was so funny because she'd... She kept saying, like, she'd slap her face, like, and be like, get it together, Pidge. But when she says it, it really doesn't sound like Pidge. It sounds like a swear word. And I thought she swore. And I was like, wow, really, really risking risking it up. (laughs) Get it together, Pidge. This is probably the best I've seen Amy G in in any particular role, having seen her probably do three or four shows. I thought the Pidge character and the idea of having a New York pigeon at the center of the Big Apple ring was a very cute conceit. Yes, it was. And uh, yeah, I thought the show was great. And you know, they got rid of the front tent this year, so it was a bit like packed in the in the waiting area. But I mean, it's a great traditional circus and I love that it's still around. They keep it at this level. I have a good feeling that it'll be around for a while to come. Mm-hmm. And then we went to Vegas, totally Vegas, switching baby. it up. <laughs> Vegas. And we were there three nights and saw four shows. So really packed it in. But there was so many new to see. The, the one show we were supposed to see, but we didn't end up seeing was Cirque du Soleil's new show, Run. Are you in? Although we heard a lot about it from we heard a lot folks about it, Vegas. and there was a news article that came out maybe yes two days ago. Um, you know, Daniel Lamar was on the podcast and he talked about Run and it being the newest show. And what we didn't realize is that Cirque hasn't done a new show in Vegas since 2013. So this was like their first show in a while, um, first new show in a while. The feedback has been that it's mixed, mixed. at best. <laughs> um, I guess it's very, very dark and it's very heavy on the tech, which, of course, we could have you know, guessed. The biggest other note is that it feels like you're just watching a movie, which, you know, is like the antithesis of what I like. Because I'm like, if you're going to a live show, you want to like feel like it's a live performance and you're watching people and not a movie, um, which is what I didn't like about Network that starred Brian Cranston on Broadway because it was all filmed while you're watching this thing on stage. And then an injury happened with the motorcyclists on the second night, performance, which obviously doesn't bode well. But I think we're very interested to see it, but kind of want to give it a little bit more time before we saw it. Yes. You know, Cirque du Soleil shows often when they open aren't very good. 
and by year one, year two, then they really start hitting their stride. And not dissimilar from the way we work and other contemporary circus companies work. Just because you've opened the show doesn't mean you're done creating it yeah. and done improving it. I mean, Slumber really stunk until about our first show. Oh yeah, we got to Australia and then it really started hitting its stride. But I think we did about eighty performances of Slumber, and it felt like it was finally getting into the rhythm around. Show 40, show 50, which might sound a lot to some people, but if you imagine you're creating a show that's going to last for years and years and years, uh, you know, that could be hundreds, if not thousands of shows. So Mm -hmm. the fact that it takes a couple dozen to really find the show's niche and what works Mm -hmm. and what doesn't work shouldn't really be too much of a surprise. No, but the first show that we did actually go see was Magic Mike Live. Oh my god. And Lindsay had never seen the Magic Mike movie. For those of you who don't know, Magic Mike is a movie starring Channing Tatum about him essentially working at a uh, strip club that caters to the ladies. So it's all guys. And the show is sort of its own version of Thunder from Down Under or Chippendales, which is to say like it's kind of an all-male cast striptease skill show. It was at the Hard Rock Hotel, which is soon closing to become the Virgin Hotel of, you know, Virgin Mobile and Galactic, Richard Branson, you know, billionaire Virgin. And uh, Lindsay, what did you think? (laughs) Well, I got pulled up on stage. Um, It's a show that you go to willing to be physically touched. (laughs) And if you don't want to be physically touched, you are allowed to say unicorn, which is the safe word um, for the performance to know not to touch you. But I mean, I've never been touched on my thighs so much. And I was brought up on stage. And what I had to do was stand while one of the male dancers stripped. They call them the mics. The mics <laughs> stripped down. And I was so awkward that when he got into like his really tiny undies, I gave a thumbs up to the audience because I didn't know what to do. And then I had to close my eyes and uh, touch his body. Lucky you. Lucky me. While Josh filmed the whole thing. <laughs> but the, to me, what was the most impressive part of Magic Mike was the whole producing of it. Yes. You walk into the Hard Rock Hotel, you find the theater, instantly you're greeted and keep in mind the audience is probably 90% female and 10% male and you have to go through like security screenings and all the bodyguards have these great sort of one-liners for the ladies and then you get your photo taken and you know the photographer has funny lines about being there as a couple or if you're there's a bachelorette party so instantly from the moment you arrive the staff is engaging you and you walk downstairs with two levels into what looks like it was a nightclub it's kind of a square, large square uh, room that's two levels and the sort of square rectangular stage in, in the, the middle. middle. And it was just designed beautifully. Like it felt yeah. very, very cool. Being And everyone gets fake money on their seat to like, you know, give out to the to the guys. Yeah. Like were they red dollars that each yeah. had each of the different Mike's faces and bios on each. Yeah, which was dollar. a fun little. But I mean, you know, I got flipped around and humped and. Uh, you know, and a lot of the girls in the audience were like just dying for attention attention, and would like grab the mics and they would dance with them. And, you know, it's just so not me, but I really enjoyed the show. One of the most effective parts about Magic Mike, because it's essentially a variety show with dirty dancing and a couple circus acts and a couple musical moments, is that the host is a woman, yeah. which is so clever because it really gives a voice and like permission to all the women in the audience and almost explains or says like what one might be thinking or feeling watching all these hot dudes in a comedic female 
perspective. Yeah, she was great. And we actually met the it's a, it's two girls that switch on and off, Chelsea and Jordan. And Jordan um, was nice enough to help us arrange our tickets. And she, we met her before. And, you know, she's like a, a musical theater performer from New York. So they're really talented girls and they're really funny. And, um, you know, I wish we could have seen Jordan do it. We saw Chelsea, but Chelsea was amazing. And having a female host be the voice of the room and have the audience be almost all female with the female host kind of guiding us all through it was very smart. And I guess Channing Tatum really you know, created, produced it and directed it. And, you know, props to him. I mean, he really did find a way to reinvent this Chippendales format and medium. And if you're the kind of person who goes and sees shows all the time in Vegas and has seen Absinthe and seen other Spiegel World shows, seen the Cirque shows, you're like, what to see next? I would recommend Magic Mike for sure. Like, I mean, I definitely wouldn't recommend it to like my mom, but maybe her friends. Yeah, your mom and her friends. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not your dad and his friends, but if, particularly if you're a group of ladies, I think it's yeah. right up your alley. Having said that, it's closing at the Hard Rock, I believe on November 23rd, to move to the Sahara, which is where Blanc de Blanc is. The reason it's closing is because the whole hotel is going under renovation for a year to flip from the Hard Rock to the Virgin. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they reconfigure the space. Mm. We were just at Sahara. We saw Blanc on our second night. Yes, so Blanc de Blanc is a show from Australia that we actually saw because it was performing at the same time in Australia when we had our show Slumber there. And our very good friends, Spencer Novick and Laura New, were in it in Australia and came with it to Vegas. So we saw Blanc, and it was a great example of seeing a show a two hour show in, in Australia and see how you bring it to Vegas, which is a very different market and need to make it like a 75 minute show. I think, you know, they had a lot of challenges that were completely separate from the production that made it, made it much harder for the show to succeed. The first being the way the room was laid out. So they had this, the show was at the Sahara and it was in a room that was essentially a super long rectangle with the stage in the center. But it meant that because of the way the room was configured, there were probably only four to eight seats that actually sat center and looked forward. And the rest of the house, which is a couple hundred seats, were either sitting entirely on the left side of the stage or on the right side of the stage, which just meant that there's not really that many good viewing angles to start with and for a show that really relies on getting the audience hyped and excited and in the mood of popping that champagne cork because the show is themed around champagne quite hard to do when you can't engage the audience without constantly spinning around yeah when we saw it in in australia it was in a spiegel tent so you know pretty like i think it's at like 500 or something but it still felt tight and really great and it was a wonderful show and it felt very much like at the end of the night everyone was excited and happy and ready to party in a massive room with the ceilings being super high you couldn't hear other people clapping really because it was such a large room and so loud um so it, it was hard to have that like b- group party environment that the show like requires but everyone in the show individually did an amazing job like spencer as always does an amazing sound effects act and he's he's incredible to watch. And the bad thing about the room was that we were watching from the side and his act is really the, at its height when you're watching it head on um, because of the shapes he makes with his bodies and everything. And Laura knew as a started as a dancer singer from L.A. and got into this world through the choreographer of the show, Kevin Mayer. Meyer. Um, he choreographs a lot for Madonna. 
And Laura created this little like audience participation act, which is hilarious. And one of my favorite parts of the show wasn't in it in Australia. And she's just like such a joy to watch on stage. Yeah, it's not that we give out like most improved player awards, <laughs> but if there was a most improved player award of, you know, people who we've seen develop in the last three years, like Laura for sure yeah. is one of them. Really going from like a commercial dancer singer to somebody who has so honed her comedy skills that she's really become honestly the highlight of that show of course gotta mention Hampus and Milena who do a straps act which is phenomenal Mm -hmm. they're also hilarious to follow on Instagram (laughs) and in their circus journey Uh, but they were definitely two highlights yeah the other thing I would just say about Blanc is that it's put itself amongst the hardest possible competition when it is usually playing, it's playing in festivals in Australia and is the biggest show amongst medium and small sized shows. So you know, said big fish in little pond yes. and now it's in, you know, big pond, big ocean and it's the same sized fish. And there are much, much bigger ones like Cirque du Soleil, who are enormous. And then you have Spiegel yeah. World, who are sort of the next tier down and trying to compete in that sphere is just very difficult. Yeah. And it's at a hotel that is... Um under really, construction. really under construction and far away from all the other hotels. And, you know, our, our show, Misbehaved Game Show, which is at Bally's Hotel and Casino, which is on the Strip, but it's on the other end of the Strip. Even though it's kind of a, sh- a not as nice hotel, I'll say. I, I censored myself. Um, it is central. Lo- central and location wise, it's great. And it's connected to the Paris Hotel. So in that sense, there's a lot of foot traffic and there's a lot of people walking by. The Sahara, you you have to take an Uber to get to. And it's when it was the SLS Hotel, which it was before, before Blanc was in it, there was never anyone in it either. So I think it's just an interesting study of transferring a show from a different country, A, B, condensing the show for a Las Vegas time and see location because I think location doesn't always matter, but sometimes it does. Often it does. Yeah. And we had to talk about that on our episode later today with Ross Mollison, who has three different shows in Las Vegas. <laughs> and and we talk about which, how the venues play into both the theme of the show and how you sell tickets to it. So definitely stay tuned for that. But we happen to see two shows in Vegas. Well, so Misbehave Game Show, our show that I was just talking about, Amy Saunders is the creator, originator, writer, director, star. A.K.A. Misbehave. Misbehave. But she's taking a a, a much-deserved break. And uh, Lily Coy Chaos is filling in for Amy. And she is also from the uh, Australia, UK. But yeah, did La Clique, did La Soiree, I think. Yeah. And so Josh and I wanted to see her do the show with Brett Fister, who plays the glamour assistant, Tiffany. And I would say that their dynamic was wonderful. You know, to be honest, I was quite nervous to see what it would be like because Amy Saunders, the originator, is so good at it. And it's really her voice and her worldview. And would somebody else portray it as well, particularly somebody who's quite young in comparison um, to Amy. So would they? Would she have the same kind of world view mm-hmm. and perspective? And I thought Lily Coy's take on the show was great. I Had a too. really fun, silly energy to it. Still managed to get across all the jokes and all the important themes. She also has a hula hoop act, so that added sort of to the variety skill in the show. Really felt like it hadn't missed 
a beat. So Yeah, and we ran into Ryan Shinji, who is a previous podcast guest. A Cirque performer. Cirque performer in Curious. He does the big trampoline acting Curious, if you've seen that. Um, but it was so funny to see him there. And we uh, left Misbehave to go then to Atomic Saloon. So Atomic Saloon is the newest show from Spiegel World, which was a company founded by our guest today, Ross Mollison, who's one of our favorite podcast guests. It'll be his third time on the show. And Atomic is their third show in Vegas that's following Opium and prior to that Absinthe. So Absinthe is currently playing at Caesars. It's been open for, I want to say, eight years. Yeah. Eight, eight, nine years. Uh, And then we have Opium. It's playing at uh, the Rose Rabbit Lie Room at the Cosmopolitan Hotel, which uh, was directed by the wonderful Matt Hodges. And when we saw him in Vegas, he was like, I thought you guys were going to review Opium. And I guess we never got around to it. But it's a great show. Josh is a, is really obsessed with Opium. In a I way, think it's my favorite Spiegel World <laughs> show, probably. Even after we saw Atomic Saloon, which is great, and we'll talk about it, Opium is still Josh's favorite favorite show. And I would say I really enjoyed Opium too because it's such a silly atmosphere, and it feels unfinished, which is a great thing. Like it feels like oh, like everyone's kind of you know like doing this all together, and we're getting through it, and it doesn't feel so polished, which is a quality is hard to achieve, but it makes as an audience member watching it so much fun. It's always fun seeing performers discover things on stage and feeling like it's constantly fresh and hard to know if opium just is actually still discovering things on stage or if that's sort of the style of performance, but big props to the team over there. However, we're going to focus on Atomic right now because that's their newest baby and the one we've seen most recently. So Atomic Saloon is playing at the shops at Palazzo in a space that was previously called the act uh, there's a nightclub called The Box in New York City, started by a man named Simon Hammerstein. And the nightclub was very, very successful. I used to work there. And they opened a Vegas version of it called The Act, which only ran, I want to say, for about nine months and was shut down by the hotel for essentially being too dirty and too lewd and too risque. And the space <laughs> has been sitting empty at least for five years. Probably longer. And, you know, be wondering what's going to go in here, mm-hmm. what kind of thing would work. And turns out Ross Mollison and the Spiegel World team got the invite to come check it out and see if they could create something for it. And they did. They turned it into a Wild West style saloon. If you've seen Queen of the Night in New York, which was a uh, show that had lots of attached special rooms... This is kind of the same where you have one main performance room and then on various different levels there are hidden bars and hidden rooms and like little things that you can explore and check out. Uh, The show itself was directed by Cal McChrystal who's a pretty well-known English comedy director, performer. The comedy in the show was insanely tight for yeah. how fresh it well, that's was. that's what I was saying about, you know, Opium versus uh, Atomic Saloon. I mean, if you go to Vegas, you really should see both of them because I think they're so different and really so good in their own way. But Atomic Saloon is just so tight and clean and, like, feels so um, clear well constructed yeah and 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 opium feels more like loosey goosey yeah like we're like i don't know it just has a fun vibe but thompson is so funny and the lead lady who's the host of the night i don't know her real name but her character name is boozy skunkton so funny and her like over the top western southern accent is i loved it and um our favorites suzanne and peter who have also been on the podcast. They are hand tappers and Irish step dancers. When they Irish step danced in my apartment, I had like 
dreams coming true because I was obsessed with Riverdance. <laughs> but they're so good in the show. I mean, they're so good. I think also the entire atmosphere that is created in in Atomic Saloon is incredible because from the second you walk in through every single act, through every single moment, it's all in this world. Never a time when it feels something is out of place and there's weird choices, but it makes it really fun. And I don't want to give anything away because it wasn't given away for me and I had, didn't see it coming, but at the end there's like a bit of a twist and they do a very good job at keeping it uh, seem spontaneous spontaneous yeah it's very good the two other things i'd point out about it that i thought were quite impressive was this the soundtrack yeah you know one of the things that we talked to ross about is how do you constantly find what feels like a fresh theme for each essentially variety show and this sort of music was kind of rock country uh hard to describe it but i've never seen a show really stick in this kind of country music Mm -hmm. format i thought Mm -hmm. that was super effective and then one thing you have to do if you get the chance is uh, there's a thing called an automaton in the back of the saloon. Well, I think that's only for like if you're if you get invited to the back. Well, see if you can get invited <laughs> to the back. If not, just like sneak your way through. But they have this very cool art installation. I'm not even really sure how to describe it. But you put a dollar, an Australian dollar, into a coin slot. And then this tiny little stage that's built into the wall lights up. And you see a whole little circus show sort of done with automated puppetry, super old school technique. Like everything is done by like wires and gears and it's all mechanical oriented. And it sort of tells the history of Spiegel World through a mini circus show. So if you're a big Spiegel fan, you'll see all these little references to past productions and past characters. It was very cool. And, you know, the drinks are a bit expensive, but really worth it. They were so delicious. But one thing that Josh and I were talking about that I think is an interesting point to, to, to think about with these like variety shows, because I think people can feel like it's just a variety show. It's, like, it's just like act, act, host, act, act, host. The thing that Spiegel World gets and does so well is that it really creates the world that you're watching this variety show in and it establishes who you are in this world and what you're watching and whose show it is like with absinthe it's gazillionaire show it's he's the producer of it we're all here he hired these artists and we're watching the show with opium we're all going to uranus on this spaceship but this crew and all these people are a part of the crew or like aliens or whatever it's a very clear space and atomic saloon you're at this lazy this lady's saloon Brothel, essentially. Brothel. And you're watching all the people that work for her. And it's it's so clear. And something that Blanc doesn't quite get is the is where we are. Like where we are as an audience member and what world we're in. And I think it was really interesting to watch because a variety show can just be a variety show. What would you say about Magic Mike in that regard? Very clearly, we're in this space with all these Magic Mikes and <clears throat> this, these like strippers, basically. But I think that one thing that it actually didn't do well, which I didn't like, was the switch because I don't want to give anything away, but the the host, the girl host, she she doesn't start as a girl host, and that transition doesn't make sense. It like totally is like weird and doesn't you don't feel like you're a part of the world until like the end. But you're like in this bar, it just feels like you're in a strip club. 
And, you know, just going back to the Spiegel World themes for a minute, what's great also, if you're a real circus fan, is that in a way, these are themes you've seen in other circus shows. Like, if you're a big Smirkus fan in particular, like Smirkus did Wild West, Smirkus has done space. If you go look at (laughs) old style Ringling shows, they do Wild West, they do Future Space. Like, it's really about a reinvention of an old concept and doing it well and in your own voice. And uh, Spiegel World has really hit their stride at the moment. Mm -hmm. Strongly recommend seeing these two new shows, Opium and Atomic. Uh, Today we're interviewing Ross Mollison, who's my old boss and uh, the impresario proprietor of all of these shows. Ross has previously been a producer. He's produced musicals and plays and he produced Slava Snow Show. And back in, I believe, 2007, 2008, started Spiegel World in yeah. New York. Yeah, you know what I like about Ross um, is I, I like that he can talk about his failures and it's not all hunky-dory. Because I think that sometimes we interview people that don't want to talk about the hard stuff or, you know, losing money or failing or, you know, just all the positives. And in today's world with Instagram and everything, it's just like not reality. I think it makes people feel bad about themselves because like, well, how can I not, how am I not succeeding and how am I only failing or having a mix? And it's nice to hear Ross talk about both. Yes. And there's some real uh, gems in here for those who stick around and listen to it. But before you listen to the podcast, we have to, of course, thank our sponsors over at CircusTalk.com, the online circus community's hub for circus news, jobs, and events. Today I'm going to point out a couple jobs, a couple events, and a news article you should check out. Circa, the Australian circus company, is seeking ensemble members for their multiple productions and tours. So if you're a circus generalist, this might be a good fit for you. If you're in New York and you work on the production side, Streb is looking for a technical director. Streb is an acrobatic dance company based in Brooklyn, run by Elizabeth Streb. We've seen loads of their shows. Super cool stuff. Hopefully she'll be on the podcast soon. Fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, previous guest, Bobby Hedgeland Taylor is uh, one of their managing directors there. Uh, in regards to events to check out on Circus Talk, uh, New York has their ICO Festival coming up on November 17th. ICO is the American Youth uh, Circus Organization, so if you are somebody young interested in circus, check the website out for all the details. If you are living in the UK, the Roundhouse, which is a super cool venue that used to be a train station uh, and now a circus dance theater venue, is having a future producers workshop specifically for people who want to produce circus. What? There's nothing like that in the US. No, not See, all these programs exist in Europe and it's so annoying. And that's on November 23rd. So if you're in London, go to Circus Talk to find out all the details about that. And finally, my favorite part about Circus Talk is the news page, which is, I think, the best aggregator for what's going on in the circus community. They have this article right up there right now about how California, just this past week, has banned tigers, elephants, monkeys, and other uh, exotic animals from performing in shows. This should be no surprising news to anybody who no. listened to our podcasts as we have broken each state by state <laughs> by state banning these things. As long as they don't ban cats, you know. Domesticated cats. <laughs> yeah. Because if I can't see the Cats Act in Big Apple again, I'm going to be really sad. In any case, go check out our friends over at CircusTalk.com. I think they're at a, at a festival right now. I was watching their Instagram story. It's really interesting. I've, there's some acts that I hadn't really seen or like interesting. Like someone has a silks. I think he's like doing a, like a hang, hanging by his teeth with the silks all over his head. Oh, fun. So he just looks like a like a body hanging <laughs> with no head. Well, I'm sure there'll be coverage from Kim uh, Campbell about that on yeah. their website. Yeah. She's one of their main uh, critics and uh, writers who's fantastic. Last thing before we get into the episode. 
Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and rate us on iTunes. Those are very helpful things. Uh, And if you have any questions, thoughts, suggestions, you can always email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com. And of course, you can buy tickets to our shows. If you're in Las Vegas, you can get tickets to the Misbehave Game Show at misbehavegameshow.com. And if you'll be in New York from January through May, get your tickets to our dance show, beyondbabbleshow.com. And if you use the code podcast, you get 10% off at checkout. Woohoo. Everyone loves a discount. And now for our interview with Ross Mollison. Ross, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's just like coming home. It's so great to be home again, Josh. Well, I think we are in your home. What What is this space that we're sitting in? Well, th- this is the Atomic Saloon in at the Venetian in Las Vegas. And you've just given us a tour, but this is a pretty amazing space with lots of little nooks and crannies. What's the? How would you describe the theme of it? Well, we walked in here and saw... Uh, firstly, an Elizabethan theatre. And then secondly, I said, God, but it's like a saloon as well. What if we did something that's set in a saloon that utilises all the advantages that Elizabethan theatre provides? And, you know, a lot of the bones of this space were designed and built by Simon Hammerstein, who you know well, of the, uh, you know, infamous and very successful box in New York, which is, again, one of the most amazing venues. And I guess he comes into these venues and sees nightclub mm. and I come in and see, wow, but theatre venue, right? And so we said, well, what, what would we have to do to turn into a theatre venue and make it a unique experience for Vegas? Did anybody have to convince you of that or were you did you see it instantly? Oh, go, yeah. Like, this is yeah, perfect no, for it. No, it was... We started. We first talked to them four or five years ago, um, when we were approached to come and do something here, and I was just like, "Eh, too hard, too many problems, location, too many other competing products that could potentially compete with us at the Venetian at the time." You know, like back in the day, you know, I remember the Venetian had the greatest theatrical lineup in Vegas with Blue Man, Jersey Boys, Phantom of the Opera. You know, it, it was just like the gold standard of live entertainment, really. And uh, as opposed to the circus venues, which also were great, but different. And and so, but then time has changed and some of the things didn't play out so long. Um, they did Baz for the Record here, um, which you know, it was a fantastic production. It was the most beloved production. It played a couple of years. That had closed. And then we did Opium at the Cosmopolitan. And everybody said, ah, Cosmopolitan, such a great venue. But the location of that room is such a – it's just bad location. And I'm like, dude, you know, or dudette. I can't remember who I was talking to. You all. I said they, yeah, to them. Um, You know, a bad location is Baltimore. (laughs) You know, uh, apparently it's not very nice there, the president said. And um, I I went there actually recently. It was beautiful. But, um, you know, the Cosmopolitan on the Strip in Vegas is a great location. It depends whether you have a great show. Sure. And that show has just built and become a great success for us, which gave me the confidence to say, well, maybe we can do the third floor of a mall attached to the Venetian. Were you worried about being overstretched? You yes. Know, how did you How did you manage that, at least for like, your own individual? Having, Alcohol. Yeah. Well, yeah. that works, I guess. Um, and um, no, we have we – have, 
we have grown our team dramatically. We have an incredible team of people and we have also, this is not our first rodeo and, um, you know, having been through the baptism of fire that was Vegas Nocturne, you know, producing three different shows and designing and building a venue in under 12 months at the Cosmopolitan, you know, with a budget of, I think it was $43 million with a food and beverage program and a restaurant. You know, once you've done something like that, this is kind of a piece of cake. <laughs> What I love about this space is that, and your story of how, because one of our questions was, how did you come up with the idea of Atomic Saloon? And what we've talked about with some people is that it's frustrating when you have an idea for a show or someone has an idea for a show and goes to see a space and then just tries to make it work versus seeing a space and then saying, what can I do in this space? Right. Because if they're you know symbiotic, it creates such a better show and experience for an audience member. And this space really like, feels like it really belongs with the show. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly true. And, you know, I've always, there's so many things, you know, in learning about the history of Vegas as we've worked here over the last nine years, you know, like I've always loved Fremont Street where we've, we've bought a bakery down there that we're transforming at the moment. And I've always loved Atomic Liquors and the story of that saloon, that bar where people would go down and buy some drinks and then climb up on the roof to watch the nuclear tests in the desert. You know, it's probably total crap, but it's a great story. And I love, I really love that about, about you know, the mythology of Vegas. So I saw this and then I've always loved Mel Brooks. And I grew up every holidays, we'd watch Flying High, which is called something else here, um, the airport maybe or something like, you know, the parody oh, flying movie. Not airplane. Airplane. Oh, airplane. Airplane. Yeah. Airplane. We call it Flying High. And then I'd watch Blazing Saddles. My brother and I would watch those two movies every school holidays. And that is me. I'm so sorry. An amateur. Um, absolute amateur. And um, I, I, I loved this Mel Brooks movie, and you know, and I love the producers. You know, I love all that that style of comedy. And Mel Brooks was actually known as the atomic comedian. That's what well, that's what he had on his business card when he started out as a kid. And um, I just like ah, atomic and Mel and a saloon and the Wild West, and then you kind of get into you start thinking about other ideas around that, and um, like Westworld, and you know, and you start to say, well, maybe there is something in all of this that we can pull together something that feels totally new, but also hits the American market right in the center. A typical kind of disconnect I guess we run into with with traditional theater makers is the ingrained in them that it's the playwright who comes up with the idea and that's who is driving the force of the show and then the producer comes in and just like makes sure they hire all the right people and in circus and dance and in anything not in the traditional genre it's a lot of the times the producer who comes up with an idea and a theme and then creates the people that can achieve that theme yeah i think you're exactly right that's the difference with circus compared to say a conventional broadway or off-broadway play where you know the i don't think many producers 
go to playwrights and say, can you write me a, a story about some witches in Salem? You know, I mean, I think uh, I that's it kind of... Go well. Right, exactly. And and I'm sure it happens from time to time, but, um, you know, like the Dodgers, you know, doing musicals on Jersey Boys or, you know, on, on, on the Four Seasons or whatever. But, um, yeah, I think we borrow from both worlds, having been exposed to all those worlds of, I know I've worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber, I've worked with Slava Palunin on Snow Show, I've worked with Cirque du Soleil and in learning from all those different worlds, diff- worlds, different things and also meeting different creatives as a result of that and saying, yeah, I'm really excited about working with this person, you know, and that lighting designer and that choreographer and, you know, you just, you form friendships as you guys have and do things that are exciting to us. So do you feel like whether it's hiring somebody who's in the show versus a creative design person or somebody who's working in like the business general management, you're looking for the same kind of thing or is it very different for each kind of department? Each department, each show is different. And so we try and take risk to the extent that we can stomach it in terms of creative risk. And but more and more we're taking creative risk in other areas. So like in Burning Man, we go to Burning Man and put on a show there where we say to artists we work with, we'll come to Burning Man, but don't do what you normally do. You have to do something different. And and um, and we don't do that's not a Spiegel World thing. That's the Falzoni Buzikov family circus, and we just help them get it on. And then you know and help them with some artists and off it goes. And then out of that come a whole series of ideas. And so, for instance, this year there um, we took Chef Christian and a whole kitchen and we did a dinner show and we served 300 meals um, to an audience and they had dinner and then they saw a show. And we were doing like one night we did um, this paella that was like five feet across that we paraded around the room and then everybody participated in it. The next night we did uh, uh, chicken with foie gras and truffle. Like it was really like people were like, you are kidding me. You know, like they just couldn't believe how cool it was. And But that for us is is a way of experimenting with that world and saying, well, you know, we tried doing dinner theatre with Rose Robert Lye and it worked to an extent. What is the next iteration of this? Mm. And that's not Palazzo, for instance. There's nothing wrong with Palazzo. It's just we're looking for the next thing. So we recently interviewed Dominique Chanteau, who wrote that super thick circus book that maybe you have at your house. I know, Dominique, table. yes. And, you know, we're asking him, what do you think of circus today? day and the scene is it growing or dying and he cited Spiegel World as the main example of it growing and continuing to have interest in it. I've always said he's a very very <laughs> a clever man a wonderful historian <laughs> and anyone who can write that book that thick book right like actually there's probably not that many words in it but it's enormous and I love that book uh, but I yeah. think one of the points he was raising about it was how you guys are an example of like growth and people going back and finding it interesting in a new way Right, but there aren't that many many examples for you to copy of other people growing, you know, a two-person producing team doing one show into a full-fledged circus variety production company. Like, how did how did you and continue to navigate growing and scaling your business? I, having watched and learnt at the knee of Cirque du Soleil for so many years and watched uh, the way that uh, Guy and his partners 
built that business. It's a, obviously an enormous inspiration. Um, but then watching the way, a different way, Andrew Lloyd Webber built his business and then watching the way Ford build their business, you know, and watching the way uh, my friend Will Gadara, who owns 11 Madison Park, up until recently he's just left that business, he just sold it. But, you know, the way he built his business, you know, so you learn from many different areas. Some are in our industry, whether it be circus or entertainment more broadly. Uh, I mean, I found I found the, um, the the general manager's book from Pixar, whose name I've totally – I found his book really inspirational. There's a lot to learn in Creativity that. Creativity Inc. Right, right. Yeah, yeah and just the whole cool. process. But then, you know, just the blind faith of Steve Jobs. And obviously, you know, just like the total focus, singular focus on one outcome, get rid of all this other crap and this is what we're going to do well. Mm-hmm. And the absolute without compromise approach of the whole ecosystem, mm-hmm. a decade, two decades before anybody else was thinking ecosystems, that you know it's just really inspirational and 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 so we try and have a focus and not get too much fluff around us and and build out from where we're going so um yeah well this show atomic saloon first went to edinburgh yes my my mother-in-law is english and i used to say edinburgh and she's like, Lindsay, you cannot say it like that. And I feel like every time I say it, I still say it wrong. But how did that it go? It went to Scotland. Yeah, it That's went to easy. Scotland. That's what I, it went to a festival in Scotland. Um, so did you know that you always wanted to bring it there first before you brought it to Vegas? Well, the thing start? about Vegas is, you know, Run had its first preview last night, the new Cirque du Soleil show, and John Katz was there. You know, like, give them a chance, man. Give them a chance. So, like, you know, and uh, and so I'm, I'm like, that's what happens in Vegas. If you try and fight that, you're wasting your breath. Mm-hmm. You know, so I said, look, Please they're, they're going to turn up. It's got to be ready to go at the first performance in Vegas. It can't be. We can't be faffing around with it. And, and and so I said, let's do Scotland. It's going to cost us a, a ton of money to do it. And we went to Scotland for a month. We lived in, in in Edinburgh. And, you know, you'd be in a cab driving around Scotland and the cabbie, well, what are you doing here? And you say, well, I'm producing a show for Vegas. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? Like they couldn't believe it that we were going to be in Edinburgh for a month rehearsing a show that we would then launch. And because we did that, we were, when when it came to to launch the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, we were the only people in town. So they said the press calls happening, everybody's going to come. So we all put our costumes on and went down there. There were no other artists, so we ended up on like the front page of the London Times and you know all these kind of incredible publicity because nobody else turns up until like three days in or something, right. and it exploded uh, just because. We got so much publicity. Our publicist is a genius there, Mark Bukowski. And 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 because we presented with William Burdick Coots in the best venue in Edinburgh, like we know that we've done so many shows there. We've been so many times. You guys know it as well. You know, but if you go to the wrong venue, if you're not in the heart of it, if you're in the Spiegel tent at the top of the Assembly Gardens in George Square, that is the beating heart of Edinburgh during the whole of that month of festival and we were there at I think it was 10 o'clock every night and so it's just the best place to be so we gave the chance the show the best chance to succeed and then we just worked it every day 
And your version of an out-of-town tryout, essentially. We did a Vegas show, out-of-town tryout in Edinburgh. We didn't go there for any other reason. It cost us a ton of money, uh, but that means that this show is making money now as opposed to waiting six months. Right. Were you? Did you ever think like, oh, well, the audience in Edinburgh versus the audience in Vegas are so different? But they're not, you see, because it's the same – it's the same thing that people are going out for. Like in Edinburgh, they're there like, let's go and see a show. Ah, let's slam yeah, back some good. beers. An hour later, let's go and see another show. Or let's go and do something else. Right. Let's slam back some more beers. That's and true. So, That's what you do And it's Vegas. the same sort of vibe yeah. in Vegas. Yeah. You know, and so they're really, it's just a really great entertainment consuming audience there. So just looking around the venue, it doesn't seem like it has uh, the same capacity that Absinthe has. Is it a smaller smaller room? Yeah, um, our first show was 650, Absinthe. The second show, Opium, is a 400, and this one is a 230. I said our next show is going to be in my dining room. So, <laughs> you know, like we're getting smaller. And, like we're getting smaller and smaller. So despite what Dominic Jando says, you know, um, it's, it's – it's, no, but it's just because, you know, we could put more seats in here, but we just want it to be intimate. We want it to be an extraordinary experience and I believe that that will actually help market it because already you kind of can't get a ticket so it's you know it's um demand exceeds supply then average ticket price goes up and I'm happy to sell 2,000 tickets a week at a 200 average oh, you know for sure. that that would be fine so it, it does have that traditional small Spiegel world stage mm-hmm at this point, I assume at the staple, do you feel like you know you're constantly trying to find new acts that fit on there? Because I remember when I was helping you cast Rose Abelai, it was like, how many amazing acts can we find to fit on a small yeah, stage with, with a fourteen foot ceiling? Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Uh, th th that's true, but that's kind of the spaces we've been given. I mean, with We Are Here, we don't have the we don't have that stage. Um, it it's just been the way we've liked to develop the shows. Yes. Um, it's not a problem. It's just fun, and uh, you creative know, creative challenge. Creative challenge. I don't know if you've seen the Sway Pole Act in Absinthe yet, but um, I saw the making of uh, on the uh, Spiegel TV. You know, YouTube okay, channel. Okay. Okay. Well, it. I mean, I'm so proud of that because it's incredible. I mean, if it's on this week, you have to see it. It's just worth seeing that act alone. Uh, and and so we're having fun developing new acts and new ideas um, that will work in our venue. So I know you're trying to bring a, a fourth show potentially that you've, mm -hmm. you've teased. Are you able to talk about that one at all? Well, yeah, it's amazing. It's, you know, it's about disco and it's a, an incredible creative team led by Stephen Hoggett, who's um, the movement director for uh, Harry Potter and uh, many, many other like Frantic Assembly and all sorts of incredible work that he's done over the years. Um, and um, it, we're thinking that will come to Vegas next. We think that will probably open next year. It depends if, you know, it did depend on whether this was a success for us. And uh, this is already in profit, so it hasn't recouped, obviously. But it's making a weekly profit already, which, you know, four weeks in is insane. I mean, absent, Particularly for Vegas. I well, absent yeah. took seven months. And, and um so actually that's kind of an interesting point you bring up when you're before you're taking the risk and deciding to do a new show whether it be opium or this are you baking in in your brand like okay i'm going to be writing it out seven months no matter what because that's what it took oh yeah for, for absinthe yeah we 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 put a million million and a half in accumulated losses yeah um just 
know, you know, and and being prepared to lose that amount of money to say, well, that's what it's going to take to build a brand in this market. Is that because word of mouth takes so long to develop, or what do you think? Because we're terrible producers, we know what to do. I mean, it's it's uh, yes, it is just so hard to spread word of mouth in this market, and it it is it is, uh, but I think because we've established Spiegel World more as a brand now, and it's interesting to hear. Dominic talk about Spiegel World as opposed to well those guys produce an absinthe, and that's that to me is a success because it means that you know all that stuff we learned from Cirque about developing a production brand is actually starting to pay pay dividends for us um, across the range of of, of product of the range of incredible entertainments we pr- present, and the other thing is that. We're kind of collecting the royal flush of resorts here, you know, with Venetian, Caesar's Palace on the corner and and the Cosmopolitan. They're all incredible resorts um, and incredible managements in each case to work with. Where do you see – we are here is what the disco show is called, right? Yes, yes. Where do you see that show fitting in in Vegas or where – like the location? Well, we, we haven't announced where that will be yet mm-hmm. and we've, we've been working on that for a number of years now and um, I we're kind of without compromise on venue. Yeah. And I prefer to do nothing or just to wait rather than do something that's compromised because we have very strict rules about which venue and how you can go into it and what sort of average ticket price you mm-hmm. can expect, you know, based on, you know, our many failures um, throughout our career. You know, <laughs> and, and you, know, you were around when we did Empire on 45th Street and, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how disappointing it was to lose 1.5 million on that over three months, that tiny little show, because I thought we had everything right. Mm-hmm. The location, the offer, the show was fantastic. The, uh, the art direction of the site was incredible. It was unique. We're on Times Square for Christ. For Christ's sake! I mean, it's incredible, and still it fails. So you just learn from that sort of stuff. You, there is no room for arrogance in our business. As soon as you think you know something, you 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 probably should step down. I mean, you've got to question everything you know about entertainment constantly. But with that said, you didn't just stop doing Empire. Then you toured it, presumably. Yeah. I mean, I remember you're saying it going to Australia, and then I think I'd less big world after that, but heard that it went quite well when, when you guys were touring it. It went it went really well in Australia. It went to Tokyo. It did well there. And then it did a tour of North America, and which did not do well, mm. um, which shows you the difficulty of touring in North America. Just because it's so big? Uh, just because... It's difficult. I mean, we were in everywhere from Portland to Toronto to Montreal. You know, to go to Montreal and not sell any tickets for a circus like that. I had the guys from Circle coming in, and the guys from the what the Bell and the Molson guys who were helping us all coming in, just going, "This is the best show we've ever seen here." Not the best ever, but you know, they loved it. They could not understand why it wasn't selling. Definitely some of those best acts ever, like the uh, Carrying Games, Risley, two oh Ethiopian God. guys you had. They were amazing, right? Nuts. They were and doing nuts. German Wheel on you know Spiegel World size stage. Yep. Yasu, Yasu, Yasu from Japan, amazing artist. So, what is We Are Here? Like, what is that show like? Well, we missed, we missed the uh, presentation. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's a very hard thing to describe right now. 
That's what it's like. <laughs> and because I haven't worked out the verbiage to pitch it correctly. Yeah. And it's really it's 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 because it's such a different thing mm-hmm. that I really want it to speak for itself because it, if I say it in some ways, I, I can hear people saying, well, I would never go to that. That does not sound for me. I hate disco. But it's using the stems of disco. It's using the basis of disco. Niall Rogers is the music director, like a disco music industry legend. And, and it's creating an experience that's designed so somebody who loved a baby boomer who grew up loving disco will love it but then somebody and i hate these these marketing terms millennials and all that rubbish but a younger person who didn't grow up with disco might hear the music for the first time and will love it mm-hmm. so it is not all that crap about studio 54 and bianca jagger riding in naked on a white horse and you know doing cocaine with Andy Warhol. It's none of that crap. Um, It's none of that YMCA, village people, um, Saturday night fever crap. It's not that. It's just uplifting, life reaffirming. Uh, it's, It's like a chance to go out and be part of a community for 70, 80 minutes celebrating incredible music in an unexpected way. Just jumping back in time, you know, when you and David Foster were starting out Spiegel World, and I remember you, or maybe it was David saying it was just you two in an office downtown. Did you did you see this as the future you guys were driving towards, or did this sort of where did you see yourself going when you were starting producing? Um, we we did not. We always had Vegas in mind when we started working on the idea of what absinthe would become. We always thought Vegas could be a place for us, but we never thought we would be a sit-down production in Vegas with that. We always saw ourselves, our business modeling back then was always about a 12-month cycle. And Miami, New York, Vegas, San Francisco, something like that, where we'd be doing a 12-month cycle of something like that. So, yeah, we were surprised that absinthe actually bit and became a standing pro, a, a resident production in Vegas. That's for sure. You and you, and the way we launched was in a, a venue that had to be pulled down in six months. Yep. So, that, I mean, talk about shooting yourself in the foot, right? I mean, we were real geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, but in a way, yes, right? Because then, then you were able to build up your own permanent venue on that spot. Yeah, well, it worked out okay. I mean, that's really, it's been, you know, our, our whole career has been excellence through guesswork um, so yeah that's a friend of ours um that's some good guessing there. yeah a friend of ours uh, company mission but yeah we, we we look we've been incredibly lucky but we've been incredibly hard working and we've stayed the course through incredible failures we've had massive failures and you know like we half built a venue at the Fontainebleau Casino and that still sits there to this day, uh, which was meant to open in 2009 with Absinthe, and it never did. The casino didn't open. We didn't get any of the money that was owed to us, you know. But do you look back on that and be like, you know, thank God that happened because maybe Absinthe wouldn't have been in the amazing spot it was in and in the tent it was like... No, not for a second. If that casino had opened, Absinthe would have been a sensation. The property would have been a sensation and, uh, you know, I'd have a BBJ. <laughs> um, you know, it, it would have been an enormous hit there. But um, I don't have any regrets about it. That's what happened. Billionaires... 
you know, couldn't borrow any more money and they went, they pulled the plug on the project and so it didn't happen. So we had to regroup and we got it together to put it on in Caesars. Do you see Spiegelwald doing any resident shows in any other cities at some point in the future besides Vegas? Oh, we love the idea of that. We love the idea of that. But again, it will have to be without compromise because resident shows in other markets, you know, doing big resident shows is a is a 20 to 50 million dollar proposition so you need to have serious investment and you need to really know what you're doing and really know the market one of the things that i've always been curious about and i guess it's probably happening to you more and more now is the uh the internal politics with all of the sort of las vegas hotels Mm. and sort of managing having their backing and supporting Supporting, yeah. Sorry about the lint and hair on the microphone. Just get a little allergies going. Um, but you know, and this is sort of more of a venue question. But what are those factors that help you determine when it is the right venue, and not just the space, but also like the partners who you're you're working with? Um, Particularly, if it's first time with these people. Yeah, I mean, and that's a very good counterpoint to the Cirque du Soleil experience. You know, who, who, they're like the swan. They fell in love once and they remained with that partner their entire life, right? And, you know, I think an enormous part of uh, their success was the fact that Guy did that deal with MGM, uh, originally with Steve, that then sold on and that relationship just blossomed. They've been incredibly supportive. You know, those guys are incredible. Those people are incredible partners to that to that to that company and they grew up together um, through that whole mystere into into O experience where Guy wasn't so sure he should do a second show and I think Steve and Franco were going to do it anyway so he said I better get on board and and then that's that's why that company builds so you know um, it's about timing finding the right partners. Not everybody wants to work with Spiegel World. This show has 2,300 seats a week. There's 900,000 people on average that come to Vegas. We are not for everyone. My grandma would hate this show, <laughs> but she would love O. I would send her to mm. O. I would send her to Celine. I wouldn't send her here. You know, this is, but there is a place in Vegas, an enormous market that want to come and see this sort of show. And you need a resort that understands that, that understand what the brand of Vegas means and why people are coming here and what they expect when they get here. They don't just want to go and sit in a nice hotel like they could in New York. They want to have a Vegas experience and we have to provide that. So say someone's coming in, you know, definitely wants to see a Spiegel World show. How do you pick which one to recommend to them or is there just one you I, I, say? I, The one that's losing the most money that week. <laughs> you know, like I just say, yeah, yeah, you, know, you need to go and see that one. Uh, um, it, it really depends on the person and what they're after uh, because they we have tried to make them different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know there are people who will love opium and there are people who would prefer the more traditional variety show aspect of absinthe. And then there are, you know, like you guys coming in, I, you've seen everything in the world. I want you to see the new thing, yeah. you know, so I wouldn't say go and see absinthe, right. even though I want you to see the sway the pole sway act, pole. you know, <laughs> go and see this if you're seeing one of them. Yeah. Do you feel like that is why, um, you know, like Vegas used to have all these Broadway musicals and I mean, obviously a shorter version of the musical, but now there's none, right? Good question. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if there are, I mean, the idea was 
you know, Steve went long on bringing Broadway musicals in when he launched The Win. Um, he he said this is going to be our strategy. He, I think it was originally called the Broadway Theatre and he did shows yeah. like uh, Hair, not Hairspray, he did uh, Avenue Q and, and, and really was excited about bringing those productions in. The thing is that people don't come to Vegas to have a Broadway experience in my view. Right. Now, having said that, the first year of Phantom of the Opera made tons and tons of money and then it diminished year on year, um, I believe. It was still profitable for quite a few years, but it never ultimately recouped. Um, shows like Jersey Boys, the best production of Jersey Boys in the world was in Vegas where it went for two hours. There was an eight-minute intermission in the middle. There was an enormous clock on stage. It was genius. They said, you have eight minutes. <laughs> Go to the bathroom, get yeah. a drink, yeah. and the clock, and we counting down, and as it got like there was a minute left, people would be sprinting through the foyers and shit, and then the show would start. Eight minutes, like it was so much fun. So Jersey Boys really worked in this environment, and I think there's a market to see that Frankie Valley and the Force, all that sort of stuff here. So I don't think as soon as someone says, "Yeah, Broadway musicals don't work here," I guarantee you, if I put Hamilton on in Vegas, it will work, right? Yeah. Like I would go and see that here, and. Uh, so there are always share the musical for it did not work on Broadway, but it like in the, in some way that could work here because Cher had her own show here. You know, I think. But why? Yeah, but, but exactly That's a good why. question. And 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 I do, you see for for me, I'm more excited about I'm more excited to see Hamilton on Broadway and to see something that's created for Vegas in Vegas that I can't see in New York. And, you know, that's why I don't want to go copy stuff that I see in New York or London. You know, of course we're, we're inspired by, you know, like sleep no more and punch drunk and, and other, you know, the palazzos and, uh, you know, the Knee Circus or the beautiful Roncalli I went and saw the other week in um, Hamburg, beautiful productions. Of course we're inspired by that, but we're also inspired by the box in New York. We're also, you know, there's a lot of other things. We're also inspired by, you know, my bar at home, which looks like that. And I said, look, it should just look like my bar. It should have bottles of whiskey everywhere. And, like, the, the bar staff hate it, but the audience come in and go, oh, my yeah. God. How can I not have a drink? You know. Well, I think we're getting the signal for you to wrap it up in general, Ross. But thank you so much for your, you know, coming back on the podcast for a third time, our most popular guest. I do want to say congratulations about Opium because when we interviewed you last time about it, it was prior to seeing it. And I told this to Matt Hodges, but I was just blown away by how you guys really found a genuinely new theme for this format of show and how many... How many of the sort of variety stage shows look so, so similar and touch on similar bases and opium really felt like a breath of fresh air. So I'm pumped to see Atomic and see what direction you guys are taking it. Well, you know, just lower your expectations and you, you, know, oh, there you, you go. it's all about expectations. You have a great time and look, you know, I think you do a wonderful service to this, you know, the circus and entertainment industry and I'm always happy to come on the podcast. I'm a friend of the pod and, you know, you, you, you know, we need more people excited beyond America. America's got talent about what we do and more access points and talking about it. And, you know, and it's, it's great that, you know, even, uh, you know, the, the, the CEO of Cirque du Soleil comes on, you know, that's fantastic that they engage like that. Um, I think that's really exciting. Um, equally, you know, 
get little, you know, the shit kickers like us on, and that's good as well. <laughs> Thank you, Ross. Okay, cheers, guys. Have a good one. And that was our interview with Ross Mollison. If you like our podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, rate us on iTunes, Twitter tweet us, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook. Buy tickets to our shows. <laughs> like us. There's a lot of asks. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening, guys. Hope you had a good week. Our podcast is also available on Circus Talk, the international circus community's online resource and employment tool. If you are not a member yet, register and find your spotlight with Circus Talk today.